0: Open, if you will, to Acts chapter eight. You may be wondering. Um, the music seems short today. Well, the music's not over. Today we are doing things sort of different than we typically do them. In that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper or Communion together, and we will do that at the uh, at the end of the message. And in in the midst of that, we. Uh, we will sing together. We will respond to what we hear from the Word of God and how, how Jesus has lavished love on us uh, after I preach in response by, by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. If you will, Acts chapter 8. Uh, I'm in the middle of a series uh, called Saved. You see that on the screens? Uh, this whole series is this outworking or the application of redemption. It's the application of God's work of salvation in our lives. And uh, I'm preaching this because I think a lot of us uh, have grown up with probably a very limited understanding of what salvation is and how that works itself out. Last week we looked at the, the, uh, the element of regeneration or being born again. Today we look at, as you can see on the screens, conversion. Uh, what it means to become a Christian, how that happens. Um, let me tell you a story to, to start us off. Uh, a man by the name of John Harper. John Harper was born into a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. Became a Christian at the age of 14 years old. From the time that, uh, From that time on, he began to tell others about Christ. When he got saved, he really got saved and he just had this overwhelming passion to share the gospel with anyone who he came in contact with. At 17 years old, he began to preach. He didn't have a church to preach in, so he began to go up and down the streets of his village, passionately proclaiming the gospel to anyone who would listen, Uh, not waiting for them to uh, strike up a conversation. He would simply preach wherever he could. After five or six years of preaching on street corners and all up and down his village and working in the mill during the day he was taken in by the reverend E A Carter of the Baptist Pioneer Mission in London this freed him to be able to do what he loved to do on a full-time basis now he didn't have to mingle his his passion with his job in the mill now he was free to preach the gospel full-time and devote his life completely to it this In in September of 1986, Harper started his own church. He started with just 25 members. When he left 13 years later, there were over 500 members in that congregation. During those years, he had been both married and widowed in 13 years. He had also been blessed with a beautiful daughter named Nana. Harper's life was a very eventful one. He had almost drowned several times. At two and a half years old, he had fell into a well only to have his mother pull him out and resuscitate him. When he was 26, he was swept out to sea by a reverse current and barely survived that ordeal. When he was 32, he survived being on a leaking ship in the middle of the Mediterranean. He had almost drowned several times. These brushes with death simply confirmed his passion made him all the more eager to preach the gospel, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. While pastoring in London, Harper became known as such a fervent evangelist that the Moody Church in Chicago invited him to come to America for a series of meetings. Those meetings went well. He came over, he preached those series of meetings, and they went well. And went so well, in fact, that after a certain amount of time, after a few years, the Moody Church invited him to come again. So Harper on this second invitation, boarded a ship uh, with a second-class ticket from Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Harper's wife had just died just a a few years earlier, and he had with him his only daughter, Nana, who was at that time six years old. What happened after this, we know from mainly two sources. One was his daughter, Nana, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. She remembered being woken by her father uh, a few nights into their journey. It was about midnight, and he told her that the ship that they were on had struck an iceberg. He told her that, the, that another ship was on its way to rescue them, but as a precaution, he was going to put, them, put her onto a lifeboat with an older cousin that was with them. As for Harper, he would wait for the, next, for the ship to get there, and he would get on that ship and, and be saved. The rest of the story is a very well-known tragedy. He had planned to get on that next ship, but he never got on that ship. Little Nana and her cousin were saved, but the ship that they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know the rest of the story of, of what happened to John Harper is because some months later, in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, a young Scotsman stood... Uh, In that meeting, with tears streaming down his face, and told the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic that night. He had clung to a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters. And the rest of what I will tell you, I'll tell you in his words. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near, John Harper. He, too, was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out, man, are you saved? No, I'm not, I replied. He shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed back beside me again. Are you now saved? He called out. No, I answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, said John Harper. Then, losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank into the deep waters. There alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. This issue of conversion is a mysterious thing. How does someone go from being at odds, at enmity with God... In total rebellion against God, pursuing his own way, following wholeheartedly after the evil pursuits of this world and of his own inclination of his own heart to becoming friend of God. To becoming repentant and trusting in God. How does that happen? Well, I want to answer that question today. And I am praying That today, some of you, many of you, might come to the place where you are also converted to Christ. Let's look at our text together. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, when they believed what Philip was preaching, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this morning, I am at your mercy. God, this act of bringing someone to life to the point where they would want to trust in you, God, I can't pull it off. Only you can do that, God. I pray, Lord, that you would speak in such a way that you would call men out of death into life. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things are needed for true conversion. I want to show you these three things, and I want to do it in such a way from a passage that really gives us an example of false conversion. There is a man here in this particular text that appears to have believed, but in the end really didn't. Three things are involved in true conversion. Number one is this, an honest evaluation of self. An honest evaluation of self is needed in order for you to be converted to Christ. In verse 9, it says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic and amazed the people, saying that he himself was somebody great. This is not an honest appraisal of himself. In fact, this is a dishonest appraisal of himself. He was telling the people that he was someone great. He was his own God. And he was enjoying their worship. The way the sentence is worded here, it points to the fact that he was comparing himself to those around him. And when he compared himself to those around him, he came to the conclusion that he was someone great. And I want you to know, church, this morning, that when you and I compare ourselves to those who are around us, we can come to the same conclusion. We can get our eyes on everyone else's faults and everyone else's sins and come to the conclusion that, hey, we're pretty good. I mean, we're hot stuff. I mean, there, there's nothing in me that's ever like that guy. And we begin to think that we're something great. In verses 10 and 11, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. The reason they were saying this man is the power of God called great is because they were simply parroting what he had told them he had told them that he was the great power of God I want you to notice that it says there that everyone paid attention to him from the least to the greatest in essence anybody who was anybody was impressed with Simon even the greatest let me remind you though that even the greatest among us is nobody when compared to God the point is, is really similar to the one I gave you a minute ago. When we compare ourselves to one another, we can come to the conclusion that we think we are great. But in this case, we can also come to a point where we listen to the encouragement or the accolades of other people and come to the conclusion that we are something great. Only you know who you are when no one else is looking. We come into this place and one of, the, one of the key statements of our vision statement is that we would be real people. But let's be honest. Very few of you came in here today and were really who you really are. Only Christ gives us that freedom. When we come together, we see each other at our best. And so it would be easy for us to begin to brag on one another. When we listen to the accolades of people around us, we can come to the conclusion that we are something great. Instead of, though, comparing ourselves to the people around us or listening to their opinions of us, the better thing that we could do is to not care about what they think, but care about what God thinks. God's opinion is the only one that really matters because in the end, God is the only one that ever gets a vote. There's not going to be anyone standing at the threshold of eternity saying, you know what, God, I, I was there and I witnessed this guy and he, he was pretty good, God. Who has any wisdom to give God counsel? So we would be better served to find out what God thinks of us. Let me show you in Scripture what God thinks about us outside of Christ. Galatians 6, 3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Beyond that, God says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. We begin down this road of conversion by taking an honest evaluation of ourselves. We don't compare ourselves to one another or listen to the times that they are impressed with us. Instead, we come to the conclusion that God comes to because He is the only one who really matters in the end. Secondly, what else is involved with conversion? Well, Secondly, trust in Christ alone. Trust in Christ alone. Another way to say this is believing in Jesus. But to say believing in Jesus really doesn't mean a whole lot. I believe that 2 plus 2 is 4. I believe that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. I believe that Abraham Lincoln was what? He was what president? 16th. See, I don't even know that. But I believe it because you told me. It's not enough to say, I believe. Another word for this would be faith. But really, in our context, it's not even enough to say faith. Because we have faith in a lot of things, and faith has become relegated to something that is really not anything powerful at all. It's just something that we hold on to. Your team can be down by 52 points with two minutes left you know, in the fourth quarter. And someone's sitting there going, I got faith. I believe that they're going to pull this thing out. the reality is, the buzzer's going to sound and their faith will do them no good. So the better word for us to come to this morning is not believe or faith, but the better word is trust. Every single one of you today are exercising trust at this moment. Every single one of you are sitting in that chair, you are trusting that it will hold you up. I've always wondered when I share this example, what would it be like if all of a sudden a chair broke and someone fell? <laughs> but there's not any of you that are sitting there right now saying, why, we well, better help this chair. It's not any of you that are really holding your weight on your feet and just pretending that the chair is holding you. You are sitting in it. You're resting in the chair. It has required a decision of your will to trust that that chair will support you. Look at what happens in in the rest of the story or in the next part of the story. In verse 12, they had all been impressed with Simon, but then Philip stands up to preach. And Philip preaches The good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, he preaches Jesus to them. He's preaching the gospel to them. And they believed. They believed they were baptized, both men and women, the Bible says. They had come to the honest evaluation of themselves through the preaching of Philip's testimony of the gospel. And they did what only made sense to them. They had heard the good news, seen themselves for who they really were, and the only thing that made sense was to receive the gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's more than believing just the facts of Jesus. They had personally trusted Jesus Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. We know this because later in the story, the apostles, Apostles come down from Jerusalem and, or come up from Jerusalem and they, they come to this place and they lay their hands on them and they are filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God won't come where someone has not received Jesus Christ. So they've personally trusted Jesus Christ. However, we see that there is a type of faith that does not save. There is a type of trust that does not save look at it in verse 13. It says, "Even Simon himself believed." It looked good on the outside. In fact, it goes on, it says that afterwards he was baptized." I mean, that's what you do after you believe, right? I mean, Simon, this one who everyone had been impressed with, this magician who was doing all of these things by the power of Satan, he believes. And to show that he's really believed, he's baptized. And then it goes on and it says that he continued with Philip. He continued on with him. And that as he continued with Philip, he saw all of these great signs and miracles. And he was amazed. You come to that and you see he was baptized and he continued. That must mean that he is saved. But then you read the rest of the story and you see Peter's rebuke. I want you to notice his preoccupation with signs and miracles and power. In verse 13 at the end, he saw them and he was amazed. I want to point out to you that he was more amazed with the things around God than with God himself. I heard John Piper use an illustration that I thought was perfect for this. You ever been around a a one-year-old child very much? Picture Picture, if you will, you're sitting at a table somewhere. The one-year-old child is in in the high chair there. They're fastened in. And all of a sudden, out the window, over here to your left, to your right, whichever one, there's a bird outside the window. And you say to the one-year-old child, you say, look, look, it's a bird. The child doesn't look out the window. The child looks at your hand. The child will look at your hand and do what a dog will do. And it sort of turns its head and it's puzzled with your hand. And you're saying, no, no, look, look at the bird. And the child's just going... You know, and it's trying to mimic what you're doing. It's fascinated with your hand. And it never gets to the bird. Now, eventually it will get to the bird when it learns to go beyond the hand to the bird. But at least at first, it's fascinated with, arrested by the hand. The hand. And that's the picture that we see here with Simon. The signs, the miracles, they were meant to point to Jesus. But Simon, all he can see is the signs. And he knows that he used to be able to do these amazing things that would amaze all the people and impress them. And now he's seeing one do these things that if he could do these, then he could get his crowd back. I wonder how many people sit in our churches week in and week out who have come to this place of belief that doesn't really save, who have been attracted, more attracted to the things around God than to God himself. I wonder how many people have been attracted to baptism been attracted to the music been attracted even to the preaching been attracted to the people but they've never come to the place where they have been humbled by the God that all those things should be pointing to Simon's faith that does not save goes on he reveals His true nature, the true nature of His faith. In verses 14 through 19, the word gets back to Jerusalem, to the apostles, that, that the Samaritans they have believed, they have received the word of God. And so the apostles are not quite sure that this maybe has happened, maybe it's not. We'll send a delegation and they will go down. And so these apostles go down and they lay the hands on these people because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit Now, you and I, we cannot make a a complete doctrine out of this because this was a transitional phase. That today, when someone receives Christ as their Savior, they are immediately filled with the Spirit. But in this day, this was a transitional phase, and they had not yet received the Spirit. And so, the apostles come and lay their hands on the people, and it says that the Spirit filled them. I don't want to get caught up in that. I want you to see Simon's reaction Simon sees this, and he betrays the the essence of his faith. In verse, I think it's 19, 18 or 19, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, 'Give, Give me this power, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You notice all the personal pronouns there? Me, I, my. He reveals that his faith is not really in the God of Christianity. His faith is in the trappings of Christianity. Simon had not believed in order to be forgiven of his sin and to receive eternal life. Instead, he believed that this Jesus held the key to getting his own followers back. I mean, after all, he had held everybody in sway from the greatest to the least. Everyone was impressed with this man. But when Philip stood and preached the gospel, they all left and went to follow after this Jesus. And when Simon comes and believes, he's not believing for forgiveness of his own sin and for eternal life. No, He's believing that this Jesus holds the key to get His crowd back. Many view Jesus this way. They believe that He is something good to just simply add to what they already have possibly. Or or like the French cynic who wrote the good God will forgive me. It's His job. They approach God in this casual manner as if forgiveness is not really something that I really need. God owes it to me anyway and but I might as well believe in this Jesus because it won't hurt. John Enser, who has written the book The Great Work of the Gospel, which again is a book that I would recommend to you. The Great Work of the Gospel by John Inser. He, this quote is found in the first chapter. He says, ask a hundred people if they want forgiveness. And a hundred people will say, yeah, sure, and can I have fries and a large Pepsi with that? They have no great sense of needing God's forgiveness, but believe it would not hurt to have it in their pocket just in case. Religion is, I fear, most often practiced to buy off God's anger, to pay for a sin done so that one is free to go on with it. We throw ourselves into church or confession as a burglar might throw a stake to a watchdog just to keep him at a safe distance. Is that the essence of your faith? Have you believed the facts about Jesus, but never really seen your great need to be forgiven by Jesus? Is your coming and participating in worship services and in church activities simply an attempt to throw a stake to the watchdog of God? the reality is that we need to be forgiven more than we even need air to breathe. I say that because when you breathe your last breath, if you die without the forgiveness of God, you will meet the full wrath of God. But, If you breathe your last breath, having been totally forgiven, there is no more condemnation for you. And death is not death. It is not the gateway to wrath. It is the gateway to glory. The forgiveness that Jesus offers is not simply nice. It's necessary. Lastly, the third thing that's involved in conversion is not just... Not just an honest evaluation of self and not just totally trusting Christ alone. You say, well, then what else is there? Are you telling me, are you going to to tell us now that we have to do something else? Are you going to preach to us a works based salvation? Absolutely not. Beyond trusting in Christ alone, here's the third thing turning from personal sin. I want to show you this because I believe that our churches are filled with people who have come to a faith like the faith of Simon's without ever turning from their sin. Not only did Simon not trust Christ alone, but he also held on to his sin. He held on to his old life, his old way of things. In verse 19, he said, Give me this power. Give me this power also so that anybody on whom I lay my hands will get the Holy Spirit also. He saw this as nothing more than an extension of his old life. He had not given up on getting his old life back. And then in verses 20 and 21, Peter gives him a stinging rebuke. Look at it. In verses 20 through 21, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right with God. There are many people who have come to Christ. They've come to an easy believism. They've come to a place where they say all I've got to do is pray a prayer and sign a card and walk through the baptismal waters and I'm good, right? Right? And the reality is, easy believism is no faith at all. Easy believism will find a lot of people in hell. Why would Peter rebuke him this way? Why would he say, Let your silver perish with you? You have no part in this. Why would he be so harsh? I mean, after all, maybe Simon's faith just needed to grow a little. I mean, maybe this was just sort of a starting point, and maybe he would eventually get there. I mean, just because he was drawn to Jesus by the miracles didn't mean that he wouldn't finally arrive at the place of total trust in Christ alone, would it? Verse 22 gives us the answer. Peter says to him, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Repent is a word that we don't use in modern day language. Your GPS in your car, when you miss your turn, does not say, repent. Travel 50 yards and make a legal repent. (laughs) Instead, it says, make a legal U-turn. That's the essence of this word. It means to turn. He had believed without turning from his sin. And I'm so glad Philip gives us an example of someone preaching the gospel who sees someone make an obvious display of faith. And he receives him, baptizes him, and invites him into the ministry. And I'm so glad this gives us an example of someone in Scripture that finds out later on that they had baptized an unsaved person. Because I've done it. It's disheartening. You see someone and you think, boy, they've come to Christ. You celebrate with them, you baptize them, and then you see them go out and live just like they did before because they never repented of their sin. They never turned from their sin. I pray that God would guard us against doing that in the future. I pray that we would not give people false assurance. Peter understood that faith, this is the reason why he gave him such a stinging rebuke, Peter understood that faith that does not include repentance is no faith at all. Trust in Christ that does not include repentance is not trust. The picture here is the picture that I've already given you. If you were to come in here today and simply go into your row and go to your chair and squat over it and hover over it but never touch the chair, it is faith without repentance. You're trying to hold on to your ability. You're trying to hold on to trust in yourself. But repentance is going all the way to the chair. It is sitting and resting in the chair, leaving your life of sin, leaving those sinful activities, those sinful attitudes, walking away from them. You say, I don't know that I can do that. Let me just help you out. You can't. But when the Spirit of God makes you alive, through His Spirit implanted in you, you can. It doesn't mean that when you turn from those with all of your heart going after this thing, wanting to be holy because sin is an offense against God and you turn from your sin and you've come to Christ, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. You will at times fail. You will at times fall back into that. That's why 1 John 1, 1.9 is there written to believers that if, when we sin, if we would confess our sin and come back to Him all over again, that He would be faithful to forgive us and make us clean. But Peter understood. Hear me on this. I want to make this extremely clear. Peter understood. This is why he rebuked Simon. That it is impossible for Jesus to be your Savior without Him also being your Lord. There are those who preach that those two things are separate, that God can be your Savior, but He really has nothing to do with lording your life. And the reality is you find that taught nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. In fact, it's impossible to turn to Christ without turning away from your sin. There's many of you probably in this room today, and you believe a lot of things about Jesus, but you've never left your sin. This week has given us a pretty good illustration as we've watched the unfoldings in Egypt. Hosni Mubarak, Mubarak the president of Egypt, um, has been in office for over 30 years. The people of Egypt were in a revolt. I mean, it was amazing to watch this thing. Just the people just out in droves calling for him to resign. And he held on and he held on and he held on until finally he announced that he would leave office. The illustration is this, that you have rebelled against God. The evidence for God's rightful reign and the evidence for your inadequacy to reign calls for your resignation. It's the only thing that makes sense. You must surrender your throne, the throne of your life, to Jesus Christ. Because it's the only thing that makes sense. You must surrender the throne of your life to Jesus Christ or one day He will remove you by force because He is sovereign Lord regardless. Today, there are probably many of you that are sitting here that your conversion is for real. When you came to Christ... You saw yourself for who you really were in all of your sinfulness, in all of your rebellion. And you saw God in all of His glory and the wonderful, all of the things that Jesus did in the cross to pay for your sins. And you turned from your sin and trusted Christ alone to be your Savior. I don't want to cause doubt in the minds of those who are truly converted, but there are also many probably in this room today who you have come to a head knowledge. You believe all of these things about Jesus, but it has never made any impact on your life and the way you live. Unless you turn from your sin, it doesn't matter what you believe. Pray today, I pray today that if that's you, that you would not sit there worrying about what someone else might think, but that today, today that you would say it matters what no one else thinks because God alone gets the vote. And today, I will turn from my sin and trust Christ alone. That is conversion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in these next few minutes, God, you will... I believe, call people to yourself. Lord, you have issued through me, a pastor of this church, your church, the gospel call. Lord, it's not up to me to produce the results. God, I pray that you would indeed cause people to be born again in this room. And God, in this very room, that people would, of their own will, turn from their sin and put their trust in you alone as their only hope. They are dead in their sin without you, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. In Jesus' name, amen.